listening to the Axis Church Sermon Podcast, a series revealing Christ in the Old Testament, broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to glorify God and make much of Jesus by making disciples and planting churches, making it hard to get to hell from Nashville, Tennessee. For more information, please visit us online at theaxischurch.org. All right, uh, I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church. We're gathering together this morning, forming uh, the gathering of the Axis Church. We're a three and a half year old church start, church plant, um, where our hope and our goal is to see the gospel renew and transform and bring hope to everything. Us individually, our church, our neighborhood, our city, our state, our region, our country, our world. We see this accomplished through the power of the gospel, the transforming good news of Jesus Christ, what he did for us, how he loved us, how he pursued us. Our hope here as a church is that we'll glorify God by making disciples and planting other churches all throughout the city. Our hope is that we'll begin to see ourselves as children of God and a family of missionaries together on mission. This is our second week today of our 16-week series where we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament. Up until this point, we've kept it pretty clear to preaching through the book of James, preaching through the book of Ephesians, and preaching through the book of John. Those have been anywhere from 44 weeks to 65 weeks in their series as we work through them verse by verse and chunk by chunk. We had a Gospel 101 series where we looked at at the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel for six weeks and how it affects forgiveness, reconciliation, kindness, etc. Today is week two of this new series we're in where we're trying to excavate the Old Testament in a way and seeing the scarlet thread of the promised Savior all through the Old Testament. We're reading the Bible as one unit and not two separate units of old and new, but one seamless volume without a break where we see this story, this grand, beautiful story of redemption played out through it all. And as we do so in the Old Testament, we're going to point out how this is Jesus, and Jesus did this, and this is a type of Jesus, or Jesus is the opposite of this character as it is this morning, as we're looking at what theologians consider an anesthetic typology, big word, okay? Uh, basically, it's saying that he is the opposite of what Adam is, that he is what Adam couldn't be. So we're going to Adam. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be hanging out in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis. Last week, our first week, we looked at a story that most of us know, David and Goliath. And we looked at how Christ is a greater David. And that we're not David, Christ is David. And we don't kill our Goliath. Jesus killed sin, the great Goliath, for us. And so we are the brothers of David, if you're familiar with the story, who get to experience the victory of David's work, which is just like the Christian life as we follow Christ. So this is week number two, um, looking at Christ in the Old Testament, and uh, the whole purpose of these 16 weeks is that, that your affections for Jesus and your awe of God and his majesty and wonder is increased. That's our hope, is that you would grow in your affection and appreciation for Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and then we're going to get started, okay? Jesus, thank you so much for getting us here today. I know it was a lot of work for some uh, some were drug in here, some came in here with excitement, others were just melancholy when they showed up this morning, 
Lord, regardless, regardless of where we are or what we feel like, would, would you help us uh, tune in to what's happening here and consider your words and your truth as we look at you in the Old Testament? Lord, would we all have the posture of student? Would I do nothing to hinder these people from hearing and learning about you? God, do this miraculous thing. Teach us. Open our ears to let us really hear what's going on and not merely tolerating these words, but absorbing these things, considering these things, holding fast to these things. Lord, open our eyes to where we see not just the truth, but open our eyes to the point where we see this truth is truth and not just hearing it as spoken by truth, but owning it and, and living as if it were true. God, help us do this. This is, again, a miracle. Lord, do these things for your glory to be made famous so our affections are increased in our appreciation and worship of who you are. God, do this, because it's in that and understanding you and worshiping you where we experience fun and fulfillment and joy. So God, help us in this. In Christ's name, amen. All right, before we jump into Genesis, I know that we find ourselves surrounded by lots of problems to where we feel overwhelmed at times. Just this week, I've received several messages from you all about real life stuff of pain, of disappointment, of being spit in the face being spit in your eye, being hit, being cursed, and it's overwhelming. It's, it's overwhelming to hear these stories, horrific stories of pain. And then watching the news doesn't take long to be overwhelmed by this oppression and, and the problems that we are experiencing as humans. You know, if we were honest with ourselves and put down the facade that everything's great and everything's dandy, we'll be honest. If we could be honest enough, we would say, you know what? I would like some relief. What can we do for relief? Is there a way of escape from the misery of just being human and living in a fallen world? Well, today, as we look into Genesis, we're going to look at the very source of our trouble. We're going to be looking at the very Word of God here in Genesis 2 and 3 and then some other supporting passages where we see where this trouble started at. You know, the Bible is concerned with us. The Bible is concerned with you. The Bible holds for us a way of hope, and it tells us where our hopelessness comes from. So let's look here in Genesis 2. In your mind's eye, consider these words and just paint the picture of whatever this looks like in your eye, and then I want to read Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Consider this, creation, perfect, sinless, beauty, Peace, paradise, harmony, rest, fun, innocence. That's the climate of the Garden of Eden. And then we have Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave 
names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. Therefore, interesting, before there's even children, you see this here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Satan is a fallen angel. He attempted to rob glory from God, and so he was cast out of the heavens, and now he's at work deceiving mankind. In this next passage, we see Satan manifesting himself as a serpent. Genesis 3, verse 1 and following. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So it was spoken to save them, right? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you can't trust God right? He's not trustworthy. That's what is being deceived here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then, okay, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's interesting that when their eyes were opened, they, they became blind. At once, they became aware of a loss. They were both conscious that they were robbed of something that they had previously had before. There's now nakedness. There's loss. There's incompleteness. Something had gone. We know in context of Scripture and understanding it in its totality, that the image of God was marred. The glory had departed from mankind. And in some way, we all experience this. Somehow or another, we know that something's missing, that there's something better, there's something higher for us, that there's a better possibility for us somewhere, somehow, some way, that there's got to be more to what's going on in this world than what's going on in this world. We have this feeling that, that we as humans were, for, were made and meant for something that's bigger, that's higher, that's more grand. It's built in humans. We have this idea that we were meant for happiness, not sadness, right? Sadness is what we consider bad. Well, where does that come from? Where, where, where is it? I don't have to teach this to my children. Happiness is good. Sadness is wrong. Happiness is what is right. It's built into us humans. We were built for peace. 
not hostility. Peace is what is right. And when we have hostility, we feel like that's, that's wrong, that there's something off with this. We're meant for a life of joy, and somehow this joy has been robbed from us, and we experience sorrow instead. And we don't like sorrow. We want joy. We do what we do in life to experience joy. We don't go plan sorrow. I don't want to go get that raise so my life will be more difficult. I don't want that new job so that my life will be more troublesome. I don't want to go get that new car and pay that extra money so that it will break down on me more. This is not how we, des- we are designed. This is not how we live our lives. We all feel this. We all have been affected by Adam and Eve, haven't we? Do you see this? Mankind is restless. Mankind is never just content and at ease. And because of this, we find it difficult to live with others. We even find it really hard to live with ourselves at times. We've experienced the same loss that's described here. In Genesis chapter 3, do you see what Adam and Eve do with their feeling of loss? Do they turn to God, their friend, and embrace him? No. They try dealing with their loss all by themselves. They make coverings. They make aprons out of fig leaves. They felt that something had to be done. They could not remain like this. It's as if they say, how can we cover that thing that we've lost? How can we fix our problem? And we do this today. Rather than turn to God, we try to fix ourselves. We do the same thing. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I want to think that that sound used to bring such pleasure and joy and excitement, a thrill. Our daddy, our creator, he's coming, he's here, he's near, I can hear him. And you would almost, where you would run to meet him, right? There was this harmony, this completeness, this relationship, this friendship, this closeness. This time they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. They hid themselves from the very presence of the Lord God, and they hid among not just the covering, but you see, they they hide among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, now just consider this grace. This is such radical grace. But the Lord God called to the man. That's remarkable. I hope that you see that as grace. Because had God not called Adam, I think we would still be running without hope and without any knowledge at all of God. But God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And I pray that dozens of you all hear this this morning. That you hear the voice of God. And that you run to him and not from him. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was comforted? No. Something's changed. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear, shame, hiding things, anxiety right here. This is the source. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Literally, have you disobeyed my word? Mankind has a great sense of guilt and a great sense of fear. We hide. 
We hide out of fear. We hide out of guilt. We hide certain things out of shame. And this is true of all of us, and I know that some might not like to hear that, but it's true. We pretend that we're in control. We pretend that we're poised. We pretend that we're strong and masters of our own fate. We pretend that we're no longer experiencing fear or trouble, especially like how it used to be, that we're different now. We've moved to Nashville. We've gotten on our own. Things are different. Things are better. I'm a stronger person. I'm stronger. I'm doing things. I'm changing things. We say that we're not afraid, yet we're terrified. We're troubled to our core. When we put our head down on our pillow at night and the world goes silent, Twitter goes off the record, Facebook slows down, and yet we can't rest. There's something in us that's gnawing. There's something in us that keeps knocking at our door and in our mind, we're troubled. We're afraid. Am I good enough? How do I become better? How do I earn that favor from that person? How do I get that? How do I lose this? Regardless of what we do, we still have a sense of guilt and a sense of condemnation. We have a voice within that condemns us and accuses us. We experience shame. If we're honest, we do. And we experience joyless living. We experience what it's like to be unhappy. Though we think we're bold and wonderful and something tells us yet that we're villains, that we're crooks, that we're cowards, that we're fools, that we're failures, that we're incomplete, that we're not good enough, that we're beasts or something even worse. And we cannot rid ourselves of this conviction. We try to be better and we, sin, we try to sin less, yet it's still there. And then we may explore new sins and just dive in and embellish in sins to try to drown out the desire that we even care anymore. And yet it's still there. We cannot silence the guilt and we cannot silence the shame. The voice is still there and we will try everything and yet condemnation still stands before us. We're running and hiding just as Adam and Eve run and hide and make for themselves temporary coverings. They try to cope just like we're trying to cope with the way things are, hoping that one day things will be different. But the agony, the shame, and the guilt presses on. It presses in. And the longer we live, we feel like that it just begins to accumulate, like it's a cul-de-sac where nothing ever leaves, and it just becomes bigger. It's a dead end where shame and guilt reign. It started at the beginning, and it's been moving forward ever since. We all, like Adam and Eve, hear the truth of God, and we run, we hide. There, mankind is in shame, in failure, in utter hopelessness. God comes in, and man runs and hides. He runs from the only one who can truly help him. He runs from his benefactor. He runs from his savior. He runs from the hope giver. This is still true of us today. It seems that we will try simply everything. We will move our life. We will change our diets. We will sell certain things, buy certain things, get rid of certain friends, gain certain friends, change jobs, move our home. We will try every single thing possible except what God says. 
Are you afraid? Are you resisting God this morning? Are you running and hiding? Do you feel that he's against you? Do you you feel that you're trying to argue against everything you see in Scripture, everything you hear from the preacher, that you're resisting the good news of the gospel? Perhaps you're afraid of listening to the truth for what it says because you know that you would have to change if you really, truly listened. This is exactly what Adam and Eve tried to do. But I want you to notice, as we're going to see here, that God didn't only come to declare punishment and judgment on their sin. God came to tell them that he was providing a way of deliverance, the way of hope and salvation. That's why he came to the garden. And I hope you see that. Let's look at verse 12. The man said, so who told you you were naked? What have you done? Have you disobeyed? And he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. All right, so here's Adam. He blames his disobedience and his sin on his bride. She gave me the fruit. And he blames God. The one that you gave me, gave to me. As if it weren't his fault. Then God turns to Eve. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's truth. There's no blame shift. Perhaps a little. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Literally, I disobeyed. There's the problem, friends. Mankind disobeyed God. This was their problem. This is our problem. This is my problem. And this is your problem. This is the source of our discontentment. This is the beginning of brokenness. This is where bitterness comes on the scene. This is where restlessness starts. Here is the very source of of the disapproval and the unhappiness and the displeasure and the dissatisfaction that we experience. Annoyance? Annoyance is found right here. It comes from this moment. Condemnation, right here. Animosity, right here. Hostility, right here. Aggression, right here. Resentment, right here. Opposition, right here. Anxiety source, right here. Irritation, right here. The the, the feeling that you have that something's not right and that will not let you have peace of mind started right here. Man disobeyed. God. This is where it is. Sin. That's the problem. Because man disobeyed God, God could do two things. He could be a good, just judge, and he could declare punishment, judgment, or he could be a horrible judge and horribly unjust and say, unjust and say, No big deal. And that would nullify his authority. That would make him a pushover. And when it comes to holding the entire known universe and unknown universes together, you would want someone who is sure and confident and good and just, but also gracious and loving. And that's why he provided a way of hope. When there did not, there wasn't deserved a way of hope here. True justice, if we drew it up, do this. They failed to do this. Death, period. No chance, no hope, over. Annihilated, done. Justice. But even here in Genesis 3, 
He is both just and he is gracious, as we will see. Here comes the curse, the judgment. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you, speaking to the devil, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring, speaking of Satan himself, and her offspring, speaking of mankind, continuing specifically to the one that will come from her, meaning Mary and Jesus. He will bruise your head. A lot of translations say crush, destroy. He will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Nestled in the midst of this curse is wonderful news. Nestled in the middle of this curse is hope for humanity. It is here that we first hear the pronouncement and proclamation of the good news of the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that will come and crush what has been ruined and set things back in order that have been broken. God initiated this process. Do you see it? He says he will raise up a seed capital S, who will fight this foul tyrant of wickedness who has deceived and conquered all men and women. The promised one is going to defeat Satan and deliver humanity. This is what the Bible is all about. God making things right again. God is stating a plan, a plan that existed long before the beginning of time. God is absolutely certain that nothing, 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 nothing will thwart his plan, will hinder, slow, stop his plan. The seed will bruise the head of the evil one, will bruise the head of the evil one. Not may, not might, not, man, I sure hope so. This is absolute certainty based on the very authority of the eternal God. The crushing of the evil one would restore mankind back into friendship with God and make things good again. Consider Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here's the seed. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the real seed of the woman, a virgin birth. No man was his father. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the very Holy Spirit of God. The seed of the woman had arrived. This is Christmas. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the one who will make things right again. He is Christ. He is the Messiah of God himself. Jesus lived his life perfectly, unlike any other. Jesus was arrested and tried, convicted and crucified. Had the evil one won? Did Satan get him? Is the plan hindered? He's on the cross. He's dead in the grave. Hardly. Consider Galatians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that started in the garden that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He dis- did. Was the plan stopped? Are you kidding me? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame so that we no longer have to experience shame by triumphing over them in him. This is Jesus. Amen. This crucifixion was the bruising of the heel of Jesus. This bruising was not a, it was not a wound that would eternally destroy Jesus Christ. It's speaking to his suffering, him bearing the punishment, him tasting death, and in doing so, he crushed the serpent's head. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, speaking of Satan, to deliver, he's going to deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus robbed Satan of the power of his grip and the bondage of his shame. He's taken the sting out of death. Satan, the evil deceiver, has received his mortal wound. And all who look on Jesus Christ and all who trust in him and all who believe in Jesus can be taken out of the dominion of darkness, out of the dominion of Satan and sin and death and can be rescued and can be redeemed to the fullness of life forever. This is Jesus. Essentially, Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus is the greater Adam, as it says here in 1 Corinthians. Consider these two chunks from 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all, what? Die. So in Christ shall all be made, what? Alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Now consider how wonderful the second Adam, the greater Adam, Jesus Christ is, and how far superior he is than Adam himself. Be encouraged. I have an exhaustive list. I want you all to get excited with me, because this is great news. You ready? Okay, here we go. History starts with the first Adam, and Jesus is called the last Adam. Jesus is the better and perfect Adam. Adam failed. Jesus succeeded. Adam sinned. Jesus, our Savior, atoned for sin. Through Adam, we inherit a sin nature. Through Jesus, we receive a new nature. Adam failed to represent us well. He destroyed our relationship and friendship with God. Jesus represents us perfectly, restoring us completely to the Father. Adam, through the curse, brought thorns. Jesus, being the curse, wore a crown of thorns. As we sang earlier, Adam is living on sinking sand. Through Christ, we live on Jesus, the rock. Adam was tempted by Satan and gave in. Jesus was tempted by Satan and stood perfectly strong. Adam was naked and ashamed. Jesus was stripped naked and bore our shame. Adam sold mankind into slavery through his rebellion against God. Jesus paid the ransom that brought us into freedom and relationship with God. 
Adam calls the great chasm. Jesus closes the chasm with himself. Adam's sin separates. Jesus' righteousness reconciles. Through Adam, we experience shame, and through Jesus, we experience peace. Through Adam, we experience loneliness. Through Jesus, we have the perfect friend. Adam blames his sin of eating of the tree on his bride and on God for giving him his bride. Jesus takes full responsibility of the sin of his bride, the church, on the tree. Adam only accomplished our separation. Jesus successfully accomplished our reconciliation. Wherever Adam affected us negatively, Jesus reverses that effect by restoring us back to perfection before God. Through Adam, we are all hopelessly orphaned. Through Jesus, we are all gloriously adopted. Adam delivers us to the grave. Jesus went to the grave for us, setting us free from the bondage of death, giving us new life. Adam gives us sin, making us sinful. Jesus took our sin upon himself, making us righteous. The life of the bride came from the very side of Adam. The side of Jesus was sliced in order for his bride to have eternal life. Adam was deceived and defeated by the serpent. Jesus looked the serpent dead in the eyes, he called his bluff, he crushed his head, and he set us free from the chains of the enemy. Adam is a complete coward. Jesus is completely courageous. Adam robbed us of our innocence and perfection. Jesus robbed sin of its power and death of its sting. Adam failed as a leader. Jesus led perfectly. Adam stubbornly stepped back and ran from his blame. Jesus willingly steps forward to receive our blame. Adam was afraid of authority. Jesus stood fearlessly in the face of the world's authority. Because of Adam and our own sin, the cup of wrath towards disobedience was poured. On the cross, the cup of wrath towards our disobedience was consumed by the perfectly obedient substitute, Jesus the Christ. Adam brought the curse upon us. Jesus became the curse for us. Adam fell. Jesus conquered. Adam ran and hid. Jesus boldly steps forward. Through Adam, all were lost. On the cross, Jesus lost none. Adam is silent when he should have spoken up. Jesus speaks up. To tell us die, it is finished, reversing the consequences of Adam's silence. God told Adam to be obedient to the tree, and he disobeyed. God told Jesus to be obedient to the tree, and he obeyed. Through Adam, we fell. Through Jesus, we can be saved. Adam brings condemnation. Jesus brings salvation. Through Adam, we're born sinners. Through Jesus, we're, we are reborn as saints. Adam is a sinner. Jesus is a savior of sinners. Adam yielded to Satan. Jesus defeated Satan, crushing him. Adam's sin affected us all. Jesus' sinlessness affected all who believe in him. Adam comes naked to a tree, he disobeys God, and he spiritually murders all of humanity. Jesus comes to a tree, he obeys God, he stripped naked and murdered so that all who believe in him would live. Everybody is born in Adam, every one of us, but not every one of us is born again in Jesus. My hope is that you would be born again in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Essentially, Jesus did what he did in order to reverse the curse. Yes, your sin is great, 
But Jesus, the great Savior, is greater than your sin. This is our Savior. Amen? Amen. I want to wrap with this. We look at this story in Genesis. I don't know, maybe not everybody, but I certainly have thought this when I would hear this story of, man, if I were there, I I wouldn't have done what Adam did. I would have kicked the snake. I would have knocked the fruit out of her hand. I would have done something. We, we, We find it almost incredible that they did what they did. But they did what they did. This is history that we've read, but it's also a very clear picture of what many in this room are doing right now in the present. And my prayer is that you will receive the grace needed to see that. Because I believe that if you could see yourself in your sin, that you would run to Jesus for salvation and deliverance from your sin and the consequences of your sin and the judgment of your sin. What we have here today is a very, I pray, it's a very clear picture so that we can all see exactly what we're doing. To those who are Christians, I want to have a word for you, and then those who don't believe, I have a word for you. To those who are Christians, you're believers, you're saved, hear this, there is no shame. There is no condemnation. No running and hiding from God anymore. The lie is, when we sin, God is angry. We have to go clean ourselves up first. We need to let God cool down a little bit. It's as if we're trying to make good deposits of moralism before we sin again, knowing that we're going to sin again. And after we sin, we feel the pressure of having to be good for a few days to give a little bit of space between us and God to let him chill. And what we're doing when we we do this is we're saying that Jesus didn't suffer enough and that what he did on the cross wasn't sufficient. We have to suffer. We have to create this space because the cross is insufficient. This is shame, and this is guilt. This is classic moralism of trying to save yourself by being better. Did he save you, or are you trying to save yourself? Are you looking for fig leaves? Or is the salvation in Christ sufficient? For Christians, it's, it's very quickly how we forget that Jesus took care of this for us, that the victory is won. We still experience this shame, and my prayer is that you would see and know that Jesus sufficiently provided for your complete salvation, and that one day, hope here, that we will experience a greater Eden, not in a garden, but in a city, a city where Revelation 22 says there's a river of life and a tree of life. There's no curses. There's no tears. There's only worship. We see him. There's no night. There's no darkness. There's no hiding. The Lord God is there, and he's reigning. God is there, and we will be there too. That's what we've been longing for. Be encouraged. That's our future, Christian. That's us. Now, to those who are lost and who don't believe Jesus, I ask you a question. If you are not a Christian, on what grounds are you not believing? What reasons do you have? What is your argument against Jesus? What are the grounds of your unbelief? 
What is the basis of your rejection of the gospel? Do you have anything to say except, well, so-and-so doesn't believe, or I read this article, or I downloaded this document, or I have this book, or I heard a man say, or, you know, no one actually believes like this anymore, or, you know, science says that this and that, and my prayer, what what I beg of you, what I ask of you is that you would consider this morning and analyze your unbelief, because when you get down to it, Unbelief believes in something. In context, it believes that God is wrong and the serpent is right. Belief accepts God's word. Unbelief accepts Satan's dogmatic statement that God's word cannot be trusted. And there's got to be another way. What else are you hoping in this morning for the forgiveness of your sins? I want you to hear me. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. All will have their sin dealt with according to their representative. Your representative is Adam, which means you suffer for your own sin as he suffered for his own sin, or it's Jesus who suffered for you. These are the two categories of people in this room right now. There's not a third category. It's not Jesus, Adam, and then you. It's not Jesus, Adam, and then becoming really important or that house. No, it's it's broken down to Jesus or Adam? Those who believe in Jesus and place their hope in him for salvation, that's group one. Group two, those who are content in Adam, hoping they can figure out some other way of salvation on their own. Adam is their line leader, and according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Adam is following Satan. It's where you are. So you're either following Satan or you're following Jesus. When you trust Jesus, you're saved from your sin. Or you trust in Adam, trust in yourself, mankind, and you stand in the very path of the wrath of God. Those are the two groups of people this morning. If Adam is your representative, my friend, you're guilty. If Jesus is your representative, you are innocent. If Adam is your representative, you are condemned. If Jesus is your representative, you are forgiven. If Adam is your representative, you will suffer forever in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. If Jesus is your representative, you'll be in heaven forever in paradise with God. There is nothing, there is no one, there is no thing that is able today to meet your need except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What you are looking for is found only in Jesus Christ. That is the Christian gospel. Nobody else can satisfy you. It is Jesus who takes the curse upon himself and brings you back to God. Please, for those who don't believe yet, give up trying to rid yourself of guilt. Give up trying to get better on your own. Give up trying to fix and figure out your own problems on your own. Give up trying to deliver yourself. Give up trying to rid yourself of shame. You will never rid yourself of shame outside of Jesus Christ. You will never silence shame. You will never rid yourself of the sense of guilt and failure. You aren't saved by being good 
You are saved by belief in Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's not about stop sinning. It's all about start believing. Don't run from religion by doing good. Don't run to religion by being good. Don't run from religion by exercising rebellion. Run to Jesus in humble and simple faith. The fact is, my dear friend, is that you will never rid yourself of all of this until you turn to Jesus and believe what he tells you, that he lived perfectly for you as your representative to replace Adam, your horrible, insufficient, ridiculously terrible representative. And that Jesus has taken your guilt upon himself, dying for your sins. And that God punished him on the cross in your place. And that he offers you a free pardon. This is why Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, died death, and beat death. And believing this gospel is what saves you. Believing this, the wrath of God no longer abides on you. For God will comfort you with his salvation. He will assure you that you've been pardoned and washed clean from your sins. He will remove the sense of shame and guilt. And you will experience joy knowing that you have been forgiven. For those who do not believe, I beg you, believe. Rather than running away from God and hiding, run to him. For the seed promised in Genesis 3, Jesus Christ himself makes that possible. Run to him. Throw yourself on him this morning and say, I don't have it all figured out, but I believe, I believe what I heard this morning. And here's what I want from you. For those who that resonated and clicked this morning, from now until we leave this building, leave this room, I'm going to be up here hanging out, even during our next songs and communion and offering. If you believe, if you believe, and today you know that it was this moment, this sermon, this, this activity, the Spirit of God in this room this morning that took place, and you believe that you're saved and changed, you entered here with Adam, you're leaving with Jesus. If that's you, I want you to tell me. I want to pray over you, and I want to comfort you with truths from Scripture. Will you do that for those who believe this morning? I wish that you would. Jesus loves you. God loves you, and we know that through Christ. Receive him. Believe him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful truth. Lord, I pray that Christians believe it more, and I pray that the lost in this room believe it today. God, Save us. Change us. Put in us this hope and confidence that you did in fact do what was necessary so that we do not have to experience shame anymore. We don't have to run because there's a greater Adam. We don't have to hide and cover because you became that covering for us, your very blood. Lord God, help us. Thank you for your love. Be with, now, be with us now as we respond. In Christ's name, amen.